Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We, 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 we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse. The fifth column. 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 This is another column. installment of the fifth column. There's no Matt Welch, no Michael Moynihan. And yes, Camille Foster is still in Virginia someplace. Although I, I think at this point I, I could say that it's Front Royal, Virginia. Um, but you don't know where in Front Royal. And if you come <laughs> looking for me, there might be problems for you. Could be consequences because uh, I don't want to be found. You have guns at Front Royal? <laughs> I've got a, a few handguns. I don't think they let you. I don't think they let you into Virginia unless you own a gun. Like you have, you have to. Like it's a rule here. So, well, I certainly didn't travel here with a gun from New York. And if I did, I wouldn't snitch on myself. Um, but the voices that you're hearing are the two gentlemen who are joining me this evening, or at least for this recording, because you don't know what time of day it is. Um, Coleman Hughes is a friend and a former guest on the podcast. He is a columnist at Quillette. And has contributed in a number of places, including New York Times, Wall Street Journal, uh, Spectator, City Journal, uh, and the Heterodox Academy blog. Um, and another friend, Zay Jelani, writing fellow at UC Berkeley, Greater Good Science Center, and a contributor to The Correspondent, The Guardian, and various other outlets. Uh, gentlemen, thank you both for hanging out with me this evening. Um, uh, how are you doing and how are you uh, adjusting to the new normal here? Um, I'm not doing too bad. I'm doing as good as one could be doing at a time like this. I'm here in New York and I am, you know, I settled into a nice routine, getting a lot of work done, um, picking my days to go to the grocery store when the weather's nice so that the 30 minute line that exists outside the grocery store is slightly more bearable. Um, spending a lot of time with my sister, watching some great Netflix, catching up on The Wire, which I had never seen, but meant to for a long time. Where are you in that? What season? Just finished season three about 20 minutes ago. What'd you think of season two? I liked it a lot. I mean, people describe that as the slowest season for whatever reason, but I, I didn't notice any significant downturn from one to two. Yeah. Frank Sabatka, the doc, I liked it as a, as a detour. I thought it was great. It, it definitely feels like a detour, especially once you get all the way through. Mm. I think season four is probably my favorite, mm. uh, but it's it's just such a great show. I mean, it's it's wonderful that you're getting a chance to dig into that. Zaid, how are you spending your time and how are you adjusting? Well, I, you know, it's not that big of an adjustment for me. Oh, really? Um, you know, I, I, typically, I typically work from home, so uh, I'm blessed in that way and that I don't really have to adjust my personal schedule all that much. Um, it is definitely uh, kind of a trip to go outside in kind of crowded northern, nor typically crowded northern Virginia. Nobody's on the streets. Kind of a ghost town everywhere. Uh, a lot of things are closed down. And the grocery store, uh, as Coleman was mentioning, is always very packed, very crowded. Uh, and certainly at a time like this, I don't want to be spending too much time around too many um, big crowds. Um, but I, you know, in, in some ways, I think it's kind of made me just reflect about uh, being thankful and grateful for what I have. Um, it's, I'm really happy that I'm married. I got married in the last year. So I have, you know, I have family here with me, uh, and we're kind of toughing this out together. And, you know, overall, I, I can't complain knowing, you know, all I have to do is go to a website talking about a hospital that has so many cases of people or so many people are laid off or seeking unemployment insurance. Um, you know, looking at all that, I, I have very little to complain about, uh, to, with myself. Although, of course, just like everyone else, 
I do want normal life to come back because I enjoy being outside, being among people, uh, having a lot more employment opportunities out there with the economy sinking so badly right now. But overall, overall, I'm toughing it out. Are you similarly able to take advantage of uh, distractions in the midst of all of this? Yeah. So um, one thing I can't do is my apartment building actually closed our gym because it's, I guess it's a communal space. They didn't want people gathering there. Uh, so I have a Nintendo Switch and there's a game called Fitness Boxing. And we like to we like to use that for our exercises. You know, it's funny now that we have video games that have motion controls and things like that. So you can exercise with that. So I'm doing that. Uh, we're watching What We Do in the Shadows. Uh, which is a very, very funny uh, comedy show that actually is based off a movie by uh, Taika Waititi. And um, I find it extremely funny. And I would recommend that to any listeners who are, who are just into, a, into watching a, kind of an escapist show that's just kind of a funny mockumentary about vampires. And it streams on Hulu. Oh, I've seen that. That is hilarious. Yeah, I, I really like Taika, Taika Waititi. He was the guy who, um, I think he's a producer on this, but he, he directed, I think, the film that this was based off of. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's super, like, immoral. Like, if you uh, if, like, if this was a real situation, I'd be, like, horrified by it, but it's just, like, really funny. And I guess that kind of, like, irreverent comedy that just kind of, like, escapes the normal bounds of what's considered proper, uh, you know, it, it's like the one place my mind can go where I'm like, I can put 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 aside kind of the moral rules and just be like, okay, I find this all very amusing, even though it's all wrong. Because um, they are vampires. And you know, vampires do really bad things. But, um, <laughs> but it's witty. It's very witty. And, and the characters are very, um, you know, they're very, I think, well acted and well expressed. And I think, you know, like I said, you can you can kind of turn your compass off and turn the world off and just watch it and enjoy yourself. Well, I'm going to take the opportunity to plug um, the two shows I've been watching on Hulu, uh, which I'm pretty sure I haven't mentioned any place. Um, Dave is one. Seen every episode. So good. So amazing. So hilarious. So amazing. hilarious. And Lil Dicky is also, I mean, he's actually just very good. Yeah, he is. All the great cameos in there. Everybody, yep. like Trippy. Trippy Red and Young Thug, it's just mm-hmm. so good. Watch Dave. So good. Also, Devs um, on uh, Hulu, which I don't love the sort of stock like Silicon Valley bad guys. Um, but I do appreciate the really interesting and creative way the show is made. Um, and it delves into a lot of goofy um, physics stuff that I am just naturally interested in anyways. And I've actually been reading a tremendous amount about uh, since I've been largely stuck in the house, although I break the rules and, and leave in various ways. And I'd, make it a point to do all of the grocery runs. Uh, and maybe I'm just a little more uh, strategic than you guys. Cause I never wait in lines outside the grocery store, but it also could just be where I am. You wear a mask. Uh, no, but that's, there's complicated reasons for that. Have you been, have you been having dark thoughts lately? Any suicidal ideation? <laughs> no, what's, what's wrong? No, I don't wear Talk the mask. I don't wear the mask because as a black man in America, uh, I know that oh wearing a mask oh would put me at much graver risk I saw of that. being CNN murdered by the police. Been, CNN had the entire article about that. Like this was a CNN and the New York Times. Yeah. Yeah. The so, New York Times had one too. Oh god. It's interesting because it's one of those things where this is a, a speculative feature. You write a story like this about the dangers that people imagine they face. I do not know that there are any reported incidents of someone wearing some sort of medical or even T-shirt 
uh, <laughs> created face covering and being stopped by the police um, or otherwise harassed because they were wearing this face covering. And I imagine we would hear about it um, if it were so. But I mention the face mask thing because this is kind of what served as the on-ramp for this particular conversation taking place. I guess it was last week, Tuesday or Wednesday, when we recorded the last uh, Fifth Column episode. And on that same day, I guess it was just after uh, Ibram uh, X. Kendi had written a piece for The Atlantic uh, and I think it's at this point, he's written maybe three pieces on the same theme of race and the coronavirus. Um, and there was initially speculation about whether or not African-Americans were profoundly overrepresented in COVID statistics. And his piece initially was about the fact that we need this data. If we're going to be able to confront racism in America and all of its various manifestations, that we need to know whether or not Black people are profoundly overrepresented in COVID stats. And he wasn't alone. There were other people like ProPublica who'd been speculating about this and investigating it as well and looking at some early data coming out of the cities that were actually reporting this. But Nicole Hannah-Jones was also concerned about this. Uh, And eventually, uh, we actually did start to get the data. Uh, And since that time and slightly before, uh, Fauci, the president of the United States, essentially every single state governor lots and lots of policymakers are all very, very interested in this story about the overrepresentation of minorities in COVID data. I talked about it here, uh, but both of you wrote things about this issue. And we, we had some conversations, I think, around the time that the story was starting to percolate. But I'm confident that we arrived at our conclusions about all of this on our own. Um, so I wonder where you all are now. We're about a week removed from that. There was a, a substantial amount of conversation about it and still is. I think it was either today or yesterday that I saw Fauci make fresh comments about this um, and suggest that he just met with the Congressional Black Caucus uh, and they were having intense conversations about what they could do about this issue, both now and in the future. And I suspect we haven't heard the last of it. So when Ibram Kendi wrote the first piece, just asking the question, wondering out loud whether there would be racial disparities in coronavirus, I thought the fact that he asked that question, it demonstrated perfectly the difference between how I tend to think about issues of disparity and how someone like he does. Mm -hmm. I assume that there is going to be disparities however we categorize people all across the board. And the reason I assume that is because I've spent a good amount of time looking at just CDC data on the rate at which people of different races die of different diseases. What I found is that each new disease surprises you. You know, one kind of cancer, it's Black people dying of it more than whites who are dying more than Hispanics. The next kind of cancer, it's the reverse. And any common sense you use to predict it gets frustrated extremely quickly. And what that has taught me is that A, disparity is the norm, not the exception. And the, mo- the more important point, B, that the disparities, sometimes they run in the direction that the naive notion of systemic racism would predict, which is to say Black people dying more than whites 
or you know blacks and hispanics under whites but mm-hmm. they often just go in completely different directions there are a lot of diseases that whites are more likely to die of than blacks and hispanics and it's right so you you have to look at these on a case by case basis and whatever you want to say about why a disparity exists there there's a basic sense in which you're almost asking the wrong question absolutely yeah. uh, in my article you know i thought a lot about some of the coursework I had done in graduate school, I had a master's in public administration in Syracuse. A big part of my coursework was on statistics, on quantitative analysis. And, you know, I think the first phrase you'll hear in any of these classes is that, um, you know, correlation does not necessarily imply causation. And that's particularly true when you're just looking at one variable. Uh, so, for instance, I think that a lot of the politicians, a lot of the media people who are covering this, they basically looked at one variable in a few places. They said, well, certain people of a certain, you know, racial group happened to have a higher, a higher percentage of people from that group died or contracted this disease than is their percentage of the population, uh, or maybe the death rate is highest for this group. Uh, therefore, there's something about this disease in this group, right? And they, it, they were basically looking at a univariate, uh, you know, one variable. Um, kind of regression or just one variable relationship. And you, you know, when you do that, um, you're often missing the bigger picture because you're not looking at any other variables, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think for a long time, people would do this with crime. They would say, oh, okay, well, you know, in every, in every city, it, you know, the blacks are committing most of the crimes, it's the blacks, it's the blacks, that's. And eventually, a lot of that kind of racist theory was debunked because what they did is they started looking at other variables as well, you know, whereas, whether it's the quality of policing, presence of drug trade, inequality. Uh, so on and so forth. Once you start putting in other controls, the relationship between race and crime basically disappears. Um, and the reason why is because race is basically a social fiction. I mean, we're talking about skin. Primarily, when people talk about race, they're talking about skin. Sometimes people reference race as cultural, although they're really separate things, even though maybe there's some uh, overlap or relationship uh, in terms of presence of cultures and different people. Um, but race by itself is not really a causal variable, right? Um, it may be the case, it may be incidental that in some places, things that are uh, causal variables or I, I would say the actual primary effects of what would make someone more vulnerable to this disease, like for instance, not being able to work from home, you have to go to work, you're an essential worker, um, you maybe you don't have health insurance, you may, maybe you have diabetes, maybe you're obese, uh, so on and so forth. These are the actual causal variables. And they may be in different incidences with, among different groups, but it's actually these variables themselves that are really important. And these variables are not exclusive to any racial group. Um, mm-hmm. I think if some people may have read the book Racecraft, which is a, I've read, I haven't read the whole thing cover to cover, but it's a really good kind of explanation for how racial ideology developed in the United States. Uh, the researchers in there, you know, uh, the, the two authors, they talked about, for instance, sickle cell anemia, sickle cell disease. Uh, for a long time, people referred to that as kind of like an African-American disease. And there's a really good quote from the book, um, which is, you know, they, they explain that a minority of African-Americans have the sickle cell trait a minority developed the disease, and of that minority, only a minority produced the antibodies that are in question. So basically, they ask, why call something a racial characteristic that is neither racial nor characteristic? Mm. Uh, and then it's mm. the exact same thing here. There's no evidence, zero evidence, that race itself uh, is the actual most important independent variable. Um, there's hundreds of different factors that would explain why certain people are getting this and dying from it versus others. We know that a wealthy county close to Detroit has had more deaths than the entire city of Los Angeles. That, that, that isn't because of race, right? That's because of hundreds of different factors, uh, including the vectors upon where the disease came from, 
you have to track it and trace it. You have to go to the individual profiles of people. And you know, the biggest irony about this was that the New York Times was driving a lot of this narrative. The very same day that they published an article saying African-Americans had it the worst, um, basically using death rates in a few cities, although we don't even have complete data on this, so we don't really know. New York City released data that actually showed the Latino death rate was higher than the African-American death rate. Um, and the lowest death rate was not among whites. It was among Asian-Americans in this city, New York. Now, I don't think we should be drawing racial generalizations from that either, because, again, it's just, it's just a simple one variable kind of correlation people are making. We don't know anything about the profiles of these people. We don't know the vector of the disease. We don't know their status among many different uh, axes that actually probably are um, important and, and real world and, and kind of real social conditions with race isn't. And, you know, I just don't think we should be drawing such simple analogies. But I, I have a, you know, I just have a feeling that this is this has become a politicized issue. Right. People who see themselves as advocates for a racial group are trying to portray the problem within that one variable uh, kind of outlook because they're trying to direct some sort of social support, care, concern for those people. And certainly we should be drawing all those things, I think, for people who are at risk, for people who do fall ill, for people who are in danger of dying, uh, for people who don't have social supports, people who don't have economic supports. But I don't think we should be drawing those lines based on a social fiction like race when there's, when, you know, to, to go back to racecraft, this is not a racial characteristic. It's not racial and it's not characteristic. It struck me when I when I saw that this narrative was starting to emerge. Um, and it's it's something that I hadn't even thought to myself, oh, this this is the way this will manifest itself. Oftentimes you can just sort of see it being telegraphed. Um, but I didn't I didn't see it. And it might be because I'm just so so caught up in the whole thing. And there is so much that we don't understand about the coronavirus COVID pandemic. And we're actively trying to figure it out. You'll read piece after piece in various publications from learned scholars. And you can remember sort of careening from, from week to week here where we didn't initially know uh, if it was moving human to human. We didn't know uh, about the asymptomatic contagion that was happening. We still have serious questions about just what percentage of the population is actually walking around with this thing. And we're actively trying to figure out what epidemiological risk factors are most significant. And we do know some things. We do know that age tends to be a pretty strong determinant um, earlier this week, I saw some reporting about obesity being something that was highly correlated with hospitalization related to this. But the fact that race has been injected into the conversation and the fact that so many people almost, and I don't know, I, I don't want to, to go to motive necessarily, but it did sort of feel like there was almost a, a, a sense of relief. <laughs> like this is, this is somehow familiar again. There is a way that we can engage with this story. That is almost like from the time before COVID had dominated so much of our attention. But rather than being, you know, this familiar handhold that helps us wrap our hands around the situation and understand it better, and at a minimum, we end up having really protracted conversations about the broader universe of problems related to race and healthcare disparities, because it simply isn't obvious how the COVID race angle actually does help us wrap our hands around the pandemic and arrive at solutions. Um, one of the things that I saw that really stood out to me was this story that I saw published uh, from AP uh, about the New York subway system 
and how abysmally it's been run in the midst of the pandemic. And the story had buried in it the fact that 41 MTA workers had succumbed to COVID, which is really pretty startling. That's just a, a shocking data point. And as I've watched, it's become even more clear that the city simply is not doing anything nearly significant enough in terms of making certain that the train cars are clean. I think sometime around like uh, either Sunday or Monday, I saw it reported that it takes about 72 hours for them to clean the entire fleet of trains. And it's a, it hasn't been, so far as I can tell, a national conversation that a city that overwhelmingly depends on mass transit, where people still have to use this both to get to work and in some cases to access groceries and other things, that these train cars are either not being cleaned often enough, have become essentially homes for the homeless, um, or are all too frequently still very crowded because of the inefficient way they're being operated. Like all of that is happening. And the principal thing that's been co- discussed all over the media landscape, amongst politicians, in the news conferences with the president of the United States and various governors and mayors is whether or not there's a a racial disparity related to the coronavirus or what's driving the racial disparity. And that just seems so wildly out of phase to me and so potentially dangerous. I want to pick up on one thing you said, which was that you almost felt as if people felt relief when a race angle emerged on the coronavirus. And I understand what you mean when you say that, because I think there there are a lot of people who have forgotten if they ever knew how to fight for justice in a way that isn't racialized. Hmm. What I mean by that is for, for most of American history, there was a powerful conceptual language of colorblind, for lack of a better word, justice, universal justice, a way to satisfy the part of yourself that deeply wants to fight for a better world without race being an important concept. You know, if you were fighting racism, it was it, it wasn't because of any kind of provincial concern with any one race or the other, but just a general concern for human beings as such and a desire mm-hmm. for no one to experience bias. But there is, I think, I think in the past few decades and, you know, more so in the past few years, there are many people whose whole education in fighting for justice has been so deeply uh, submerged in in the notion of racial justice mm-hmm. that we it's almost like as a country we've lost a, a second language that we haven't used in a long time. So I do think there was a little bit of a a sigh of relief from people who who felt like they wouldn't also wouldn't know what to say or think about the crisis if if there was no racial angle. And then another thing I wanted to say, I, I think there are two different arguments being made. One is um, one is more nuanced, and one is is less nuanced, and therefore e- easier to argue against. The less nuanced one is, of course, that race is somehow causally important here, so that's why we need to focus on it. And I think, barring some kind of genetic. Uh, evidence that hasn't come to light. I'm not sure. I, I don't think that's. I don't think it's going to come out that coronavirus. That you know, black skin is highly correlated with the gene that makes you ten times more likely to die of COVID. Mm-hmm. That could be true, but I don't think that's that's going to be the case. 
Um, and you know, I, I think in France where you're literally not allowed to collect racial data at all, I don't think that's going to be a public policy liability for them. I don't think there will be a single additional death because they have that policy. Whereas for example, we can see the, the, the racial data and that's the perfect way to cut through confusion like a knife on this issue. But then there's the more nuanced argument, which is that, okay, sure. It's not that black people disproportionately have some gene or Hispanics have some gene that make them more likely, but it's 250 years of structural racism, slavery and Jim Crow and redlining um, have left black people in poverty and uh, relative to whites and more uh, stressed and therefore more likely to suffer from all of these com comorbidities like asthma and obesity. And because those, those were policies that America perpetrated, you know, in some sense that th that's a reason because those, those policies were man-made, right? The virus, it's a, it's an act of God, but that right. stuff was man-made. And so America put black people in that situation and that's why they're dying of it more than white people. And isn't that a reason why it's valid to focus on race? So that's, that's like the more nuanced version of the argument. And I'm curious what, what you both think of that argument. You know, I'm, I'm fairly uncomfortable with talking about groups of people as if it's just one person, right? Like it's a, like a flat image. Like there is an X group, that X group is in a certain scenario. All, all, all members of that group are in that scenario. I mean, I mean, first of all, the majority of Americans don't even have this disease, right? Like the ones who are suffering are the ones who have it or the ones who will get it soon. Um, so it's difficult to really talk about these as collective groups in that, you know, there, there, so many people are healthy or fortunate right now. Um, I'll give you an example. There is actually, I think there's some genetic reasons for this. It's not, it's not purely social construction, but I think there's some genetic reasons why South Asians tend to be more prone to heart disease. I've read about this for a long time. Um, we have better diets, I think, than most people in the world, but we're still more prone to this. Uh, so you kind of didn't get, didn't luck out in the gene pool. Um, but then if someone were to say South Asians have it worse or, you know, South Asians are underprivileged or so on and so forth, I would think that's what I am, but I don't have heart disease, right? Like I may be in some kind of group that you can create. I'm also in other groups, you know, I do improv comedy. I'm, I'm among improvisers. I'm, I play guitar. I, I'm a journalist, so on and so forth. I'm in many groups that you can make, but the actual cause of social concern and compassion, I think, would be somebody who has a heart disease, right? And I just don't have it. So speaking of people who will be vulnerable to this, some of them will be in the group. Uh, they will be African-American or they will be in some of the groups being described. Many of them won't be. And many of the people who are African-American will never be at risk of this. Like a young, healthy person who works from home, uh, has health insurance, and so on and so forth, uh, they may face very little risk from it. Um, not many people know this. I don't think it's like a commonly thrown around fact, but the county in America that has the lowest male life expectancy because of so many severe health problems and the conditions of their work is actually, uh, it's in West Virginia. It's McDowell County. Uh, I think men have a life expectancy in the early sixties and it's 90% white, right? Like it's mostly extremely unhealthy white people. Uh, I don't, I, I can't really lay out the historical checkbook in the, the ledger and see 
what caused all this to get to that point. I just know they're at that point. Um, so I, I, I try not to think about social policy as a matter of having debt to certain groups of people. I, I try to look at the universe and kind of say, okay, who's in uh, a situation of disrepair? Who, who needs some kind of social concern or compassion? Uh, who needs a leg up? Who is underprivileged? Uh, it doesn't really matter to me what their skin color is, what their gender is. Uh, we know that this disease is taking uh, a higher percentage of men had died than women. I, I wouldn't want the disease to be reframed as a male disease, or I don't. I wouldn't want article and after article talking about how bad men have it. I'm a man, but I don't have the disease, so like I don't. I don't need some special stolen valor of being someone a, a man who has this disease or who died from it. Um, I just my 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 concern is that whatever society is doing is working as hard as possible to aid every person who needs it. Um, and I think we, you know, sometimes I think what, what Coleman was talking about, how people organize their thinking about these things, uh, it's important not to confuse means with the ends, right? Um, even Martin Luther King Jr., I think, I'm trying to remember what year he wrote this. I think it was in 1961. He wrote an article or a sermon or something called After Integration. And he talked about how his end goal was he imagined there wouldn't be any such thing as a black church. There wouldn't be any such thing as a black press. Because he imagines once people integrated well enough, the categories would wash themselves would wash away, right? Um, obviously, we've not reached that point in many different dimensions, and there's a lot of work to be done to that. But that's the end goal, right? Uh, the reason we oppose racism is because we want everyone to be treated with dignity, dignity and respect, not because we actually want to reinforce those categories in any way, shape, or form, or that we should have special attention towards people of various groups. Now, again, just like I said, uh, human beings make generalizations naturally. And we kind of have to, to go about our days. Um, I understand why people feel some form of natural affinity towards people of their group, um, towards some group that they're part of. Uh, I think, you know, um, I think I, someone told me a story one time about uh, they were in the 70s. I think they were in New York or somewhere. And there was like a Russian tourist or something. And they were just like bashing America. And a bunch of Americans were around them. And it was a very liberal time in the country. And all, all of them started apologizing to the Russian guy. Like, oh, yeah, we are really bad. Like there is that kind of sort of, you know, kind of masochistic kind of streak in, in maybe part of uh, like liberal America, maybe. But for the most part, people do tend to have solidarity with groups that they strongly identify with. Maybe the issue with those liberals in the 70s is they didn't strongly identify with America at that point. So I understand the impulse. I just don't necessarily find it all that meritorious. Uh, I, you know, I, I reported a long article um, several years ago about one of my county commissioners back in Cobb County in Georgia. She was an African-American woman. Uh, she was pulled over by the police around midnight. First, she was tailed for like miles or some, some amount of distance. She was pulled over in the middle of the night. Very obviously, it was like racial profiling or something close to it. They thought she was stealing something. She was just studying for her bar exam. Uh, she went back to the council. The council, the whole county board was attacking her, telling her, why don't you just suck it up and you should respect the cops. And it was, it was a terrible incident. Uh, I wrote about it. I did uh, open records requests to get their emails to expose all this. I didn't do that because I set out and said that, you know, I'm, I'm an ally to the, to the black people or to this, you know, uh, to some group. I did it because it was unfair. It was a human being being treated unfairly. And people can be treated unfairly across the spectrum. And obviously when people are racially discriminated against and profiled against, they are being treated unfairly. Um, but I think, you know, it's the ends and the means, right? The The end is not to reinforce or reify these categories or to be some kind be in some sort of alliance or, or, or protection of some group. It's to make sure that every person uh, is treated fairly and can live up to their potential. And I think to the extent that we do see organizing around these categories, 
to make sure that happens, I think it's somewhat justified. But to the extent where it devolves into sectarianism, where you have people, even who work for very major media outlets and who have MacArthur Genius Grants, start arguing that, you know, this is the group of special concern that uh, deserves all your attention and they always have it the worst and everyone else is just terrible. You know, it's like at that point, it reminds me more less of SNCC and SCLC and, and that tradition. It reminds me more of something what you might see in Lebanon, where you have different sects of people who can make lengthy complaints about how their group is treated, but they don't really care about other groups. And they, they're, they're really trying to focus all the attention on one group of people rather than trying to achieve the end, which is letting every individual, because we all go through life as individuals, is treated fairly and their group status doesn't really, you know, doesn't uh, draw, draw them back or hold them back in any way. I appreciate the ambition. And when you describe the world that we ought to be working towards, one where race doesn't matter and the general impulse not being to reify these categories, I don't know, however, that that is genuinely the perspective that that everyone has. I think for a lot of people, the project is to continue to to elevate these particular categories and bring them to our attention in places where we aren't thinking about them um, so that we can rectify historic injustices um, and so that we can identify the degree to which people aren't necessarily responsible for the bad things that have happened to them as a result of their inheritance of disadvantage. I suppose there's something that we could unpack there that we could we could spend a heck of a lot of time on. It's, it's really funny. I just saw this today. Mm-hmm. Um, so Jamie Dimon, who's CEO of JP Morgan Chase, yeah, uh, he did a C, he did a letter to shareholders. He does one every year. Uh, it's very normal for the CEO types to do them. Mm-hmm. Um, at the very end of this 2019. Uh, letter he talks about um we know that too many people are left behind particularly in the black community the civil war ended more than 150 years ago and we still have not even come close to parity we need to do more as a nation we have more to do as a firm i you know i it's it's just wild how this philosophy is seen as like fighting the man but you know really it's it's all about uh taking on concentrated power but the, the head of like, you know, one of the most powerful banks in, in America, he was a very close friend of John Podesta, who I used to work for at Stanford American Progress, who uh, ran Hillary Clinton's campaign. Mm-hmm. He, he's just extremely rich, extremely influential in Washington. It's just like even he will just like parrot this exact same rhetoric about disparity. Right. And it's not that I'm arguing that a lot of people aren't left out. It's that, that maybe framing everything as a disparity is not actually the most radical um an uplifting way to talk about these things. If even the people who would lose the most from a large scale economic redistribution or, 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 or having a more fair and just political and economic system are willing to say the exact same things. And when I read things like that, I mean, that's just, that's how it strikes me. And I think that's how that strikes uh, Adolf Reed Jr. who also wrote a, a long kind of article uh, on the same topic that we've been discussing. Yeah. I mentioned, I mentioned that last week. Yeah. I mean, I suppose another aspect of the framing that happens, and as as you mentioned that, I also just saw a, a piece come across uh, the transom here of Oprah Winfrey um, warning Black Americans that the uh, outbreak was trying to take us all out. I mean, again, a, a, a thing that is unlikely to strike most Americans, certainly unlikely to take out most African Americans. The notion that it is like trying to take us all out just seems absolutely absurd. 
I feel like the the editors that that let this stuff pass must be absolutely terrified. You think so? Or they, are are they suppressing <laughs> are they suppressing their skeptical minds or are they just absolutely terrified to say anything critical of this? It's it's an, I want to say a couple of things. One one is the notion uh I, I I agree with you that this stuff goes as high as CEOs and boardrooms and whatnot. And the, the example I saw was that the uh the proposed coronavirus relief bill uh by Democrats included a provision that required as a condition on a corporation receiving emergency funds required that corporation to maintain staff and budget dedicated to diversity and inclusion for at least five years after receiving the funds. Of course, one thing you might ask is, what the hell does that have to do with helping people who are about to die of coronavirus? Right? That's a a program that is helping the prospective Black or Hispanic or female board member who's making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, if not more, and doesn't really need anybody's help. But I think the fact that 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 could even be included, I think, speaks to your point. The, the second point, the, 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 what the CEO said, I think, reflects how a lot of people believe. X, X years after something end. Interesting that he chose the <laughs> Civil War, though. Why did he choose the Civil War? In a way, a social justice warrior would come back at him and say, why would we even start counting You know, since then? Because there was 100 years of horrible policies after that that would have prevented disparity. Um, but the idea that we still haven't achieved parity is something that a lot of people feel. And I increasingly fear that I'm going to, I'm going to be having to, to make these points like weekly, uh, for the rest of my life, but nowhere in the world has parity been achieved, even in, even in instances where we know there is zero racism. For example, Mm -hmm. You look at different white ethnic groups. You compare white Americans of French descent and white Americans of Russian descent, and there's a 30 cent on the dollar gap in median income. And th- that kind of thing is the norm. Uh, so we haven't achieved parity within white people, within different ethnic groups of white people, within mm-hmm. different ethnic groups of black people. And all of the, however we draw these categories, which is constantly changing. And that's to Barbara Fields' point in Racecraft, who I had her class today. I'm taking her class, actually, as it happens. Yeah, however we draw these, there's there's always disparities, and most of them cannot be explained by racism. So the notion that that's even on the table as a, as a goal ha- has to be hammered out of people's consciousness somehow. The convenience of being able to not just grasp onto those disparities, but then to not have to think particularly hard about how we might be able to explain them, to imagine that they all explain themselves, that to the extent black people are lagging behind white people or some other group can easily be attributed to historical factors or something along those lines. It's terribly convenient. And I, I suspect in an emergency situation like this, it's probably even even more comforting to be able to depend on that. There's something about what you just said that reminded me of passage from um, Ibram Kennedy's first Atlantic piece. Kennedy? Where he was, yes, Kennedy. I don't Did think I he's Kennedy? one of the, yeah, he's not he's one of the Kennedys. Kennedy, Kennedy. Um, we should just focus on the X then. Um, but it's, uh, do we truly want to save lives and win the war against COVID-19? How can we defend the American people if we don't know where the battles are? 
if we don't know what people the enemy is most likely to attack. COVID-19 is the great equalizer, infecting and killing Americans of all racial groups. But we don't know whether all the racial groups are being infected and killed equally, which apparently is very important. Something about um, the phrasing is so wrong. <laughs> I, worry, I worry the virus is disproportionately infecting and killing people of color right now, and we don't even know. I worry that the pandemic of racism is worsening the coronavirus pandemic right now, and we don't even know. And Americans don't seem to care to know. Um, one, the phrase pandemic of racism, I mean, it's not particularly eloquent, but it doesn't sound at all credible. I would pay embarrassing amounts of money to hear you read dramatically every Ibram Kendi column. <laughs> <laughs> that can be arranged. But isn't it nuts, though? Do we truly care to save lives? Do we want to figure out where the front lines are? What What is all of the data we've been collecting? Tell us, if not, who is most at risk, which is people with particular kinds of comorbidities and overweight people, particularly older people. Um, like Those are the things that are true. And if you happen to be young and black and uh, Zaid, I'm pretty sure you you um, underscored this in your piece as well. If you like work from home, if you have all of these other factors going for you that are not, in fact, uh, risk factors from an epidemiological standpoint, then you are in a much better position than someone who happens to be white and does, in fact, have all of those I, risk I factors. I mean, I think, again, you know, it's it's confusing ends and means a little bit because I think his goal seems to be to get these group averages to be either the same or proportionate to some kind of ideal population distribution. Right. Fine, whatever. You could you could go around infecting more people until they're all yes. all those percentages are hit or something, right? Is that is that the goal? That isn't actually the goal. The goal is to eliminate the virus, right? To, right. to cure it, to create a vaccine, to bring deaths as close to zero as possible. Um, now, if there was evidence that people were being discriminated against in terms of how care was being distributed, in terms of how vaccines were being distributed, that is important to know. Um, but there's no evidence of that uh, in, as not even anecdotal evidence of anything like that. Um, so it, it's very difficult, I think, to say. And I think it, you know, it gets back to seeing this fairly incidental, trivial uh, quality of people's lives as somehow essential and inherent to their being and that people are collectors in this way. I'm thinking back to another story I reported from Atlanta. Uh, there was this apartment building called Friendship Tower. It was owned by some very prosperous, uh, basically a prosperous black church. And basically what happened was their air conditioning broke over the summer. And they, people were going to the hospital. It was, it was elderly people in this, in this apartment building. And so they were, they were suffering. They were sick. And so I went to this rally outside the, the apartment building. People were talking about how the apartment building was ripping them off. It was really hurting people. And there was a speaker from the Nation of Islam, and the Nation of and I went back and I read the quote from my article was that the guy said, "This isn't the Caucasian holding us back here today; it's people who look like us." And I was just thinking, like, you know, in this worldview, do people who look alike all kind of work for each other's interests? Are they all like in some kind of giant alliance with each other? Like, no, like the people who owned this building didn't want to pay the money uh, because they're, you know, they're landlords and they're scrappy landlords of every background, right? It's not a matter of if people look like you, you somehow have some natural uh, affinity or collectivity. Um, now, you may have shared experiences, you may have shared cultures, you may have shared geography, families, friends. But those are things we need to be, we need to understand people move in and out of, right? It's not bound by skin and blood. Uh, bounding it by skin and blood actually is in some ways a mirror of very 
the reactionary type of ideologies that created the American concept of race, which is the idea that uh, there's something real or real or something like substantive about this category that should be bounding you and that you can't move outside of, you know, blood and soil and skin, uh, that these categories bind you into some kind of collective forever. And I think that's why if you're in the nation of Islam and you're a strong believer, you have a hard time understanding the situation. Like, how can somebody who's black mistreat me? Like, well, because they're different people, right? People mistreat each other. They're not they're not mind controlled by their skin color or by their blood type or, or so on and so forth. And I think, you know, I, there's a, there's something else. And I don't think I put this in any article, but um, for some reason I have way too much time on my hands these days. Uh, I was reading the old uh, radio reports from Rwanda, Rwandan genocide. Uh, they've collected a lot of the radio broadcasts because these were thought to have uh, helped spur people to take, hateful actions, violent actions, uh, spur the civil war to turn into a genocide between Hutus and Tutsis. And one of the gentlemen who was actually, I think he later he was prosecuted in international courts. Uh, he was asked on one of these radio programs, like, um, why, why do you, do you really think being Hutu or Tutsi is like an inborn quality? And then he started, <laughs> the guy got kind of furious. He started quoting other people who had said, oh, there's no difference between Hutus and Tutsis. How can you say that? It's not a real thing. He started saying they're saying this at the time when, you know, uh, Hutus did couldn't even own property. Hutus couldn't do this. He kept bringing up all these historical grievances from the past to reify and reinforce the group uh, identity and collectivity at the present. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. He was eventually this led to a genocide. Right. I don't think anything similar to that is happening in the United States. But it's the same kind of failed thought process that people are being treated as collectives. History is being used to produce that various statistical gains have been used to produce that uh, but the reality is that they're individuals and yes there are many in- individuals who are underprivileged i think many of the grievances that who that people who represented hutu interests were arguing for were probably legitimate but they weren't really zero sum with tutsis right because if you looked at it individual by individual there were some individuals underprivileged who didn't have access to a lot of things to have a good life they should have had that uh everyone should have that but it wasn't actually a zero-sum game between those two groups. And I think how Ibrahim Kendi writes, I think how that Nation of Islam guy was expecting the Friendship uh, Towers uh, situation to play out. All these people are treating life as if it's a zero-sum game between groups that were formed in a very haphazard, incidental, almost irrational way, right? Like there isn't, right. there's just, there's, there really shouldn't be anything to the core of this, but you see it play out in different ways. Everything from really annoying Atlantic Magazine articles from Ibrahim Kendi, which unfortunately have necessitated even government officials to make the same kind of claims, uh, all the way up through actual ethnic cleansing and genocide, which is what occurred in Rwanda and occurred in other places like Bosnia. And I think that's what happens when you start to confuse uh, treating every individual decently, making sure that they do have decent opportunities Versus treating it like zero-sum games of, or life-and-death war in combat between groups that really, you know, they shouldn't exist in the first place. They, they existed because of extremely racist, irrational theories created by people trying to justify slavery in the United States or in other places in the world trying to justify colonialism. And yes, they did at least somewhat contribute to contemporary inequality, but it's kind of hard um, to put out a fire like that of racism by throwing more gasoline on it and, and reinforcing the, the strength and power of groups that really don't shouldn't exist at least at least not in their current form i think we should be we should be proud of having different cultures like i'm i'm a mismatch of culture i'm considered a third culture kid right because i grew up in the u.s my parents are from uh, pakistan or south asian um and i but i don't see myself bound to either culture i see myself as being able to choose 
what culture I'm part of, what groups I'm part of, uh, whatever feels natural to me. Sometimes I mix them up together. I don't see myself as I have to be defending, you know, South Asians. If I see someone who's South Asian or Muslim being mistreated, I will help them because it's the right thing to do. I think they should be treated equally. But I don't see myself as having to defend that group interest because I, you know, I don't really see what's what's right about attaching myself to defending one tribal group versus another. Uh, I'm, I'm, it doesn't seem any more right than doing it in, in the reverse to me. I feel like the the one thing we haven't really delved into, and I, I think we we kind of mentioned it, and perhaps have sort of brushed it aside because we we share some perspectives around these things, or at least feel like other aspects of the conversation are are a little more interesting to us. But to the extent people care about these groups, in many cases, I suspect their defense would be, well, the persistence of certain kinds of disadvantage like forces us to care. Like we are uh, a collective because of what continues to happen to us in the healthcare system. I think it was Essence Magazine um, that uh, uh Senator Harris uh, wrote a piece for maybe it was today, uh, perhaps yesterday, um, but recently um, about uh, infant mortality, different rates of infant mortality um, and um, uh, sort of pregnancy related um, healthcare disparities between African-American women and particularly white women. That's usually the contrast that gets drawn, whether or not uh, other ethnic groups or racial groups tend to have better outcomes than them isn't nearly as important as the fact that white people have better outcomes than them. Um, I make a bit of a joke, but this is a serious matter to many people. Um, and it's not the only place where there are these healthcare disparities. And those healthcare disparities in many cases persist in ways that are weird. So year after year, we'll see the same kinds of disparities. Sometimes the gap's narrow, um, but it's gradual. Um, and they'll persist across different income groups. And those things can be daunting to explain. And if not daunting, just from other people's perspective, maybe it's daunting for me because I think things are complicated. But from other people's perspective, it's just this is an obvious example of racism. And even if it's not appropriate necessarily to focus on race in the conversation around COVID, I wonder what you both think about or having looked at this, I presume at least a little bit, the various categories of of sort of healthcare disparities that do exist with respect to African Americans and and any other group, and sort of how best to think about those things from your perspectives. Tocqueville made the point in the 1800s when he was writing that as two groups of people become more equal, rather than becoming less focused on the remaining inequalities people become more focused on the remaining inequalities. As things become more level, whatever smaller qualities remain absorb much more of their attention. Hmm. And I think that's basically true, uh, definitely in, in this case. Uh, if we talk about maternal mortality, this is one of the most tragic things that, that can happen to a human being, period, is a, is a mother to, to die in childbirth. And it has unfortunately been the norm, mm -hmm. you know, it's been a routine experience for, you know, all of human history until yesterday, for all intents and purposes. Um, beyond that, sure, there, there were, you know, enormous disparities 
that W.B. Du Bois pointed out, you know, at the turn of the century with regard to blacks versus whites um, and, you know, huge ones that, that in, in the context of the racially oppressive laws, you could, you, you know, you know, you were wrong to not be mad about. Uh, in the year 2020, there's now something like a threefold disparity in the in the uh, rate at which a mother dies during pregnancy between black women and white women. The way I just said that is one way of framing it that is accurate, but statistics don't interpret themselves. You have to be an informed consumer of statistics. There, and there are like 10 different ways to frame any statistical fact. So what I just said could equally accurately be said this way. Over 99.9% of black women and over 99.9% of white women survive pregnancy. That threefold disparity all occurs after the first decimal point, right? Mm -hmm. So in any kind of broad historical perspective, we're talking about a, a miracle of health that has happened and that the benefits of which have spread to everyone, including black people. Like I said, if you're beyond, if you're beyond that 1%, uh, that 0.01%, um, obviously it's an incalculable tragedy for you and your family. It, it, it's not, it's not at all something to minimize. How could one minimize that? But to say mm -hmm. that this is a system wide problem it, how could it be a system-wide problem when over 99.9% .9 of people aren't experiencing it? That doesn't seem right to me. I would like to see a study that looked at individual cases and what are, what are the factors that lead to these tragedies happen, happening rather than using them as a way to just indict the American healthcare system. Yeah. To, to the extent I've had an opportunity to look at these studies and there, there really are lots of them. So it's hard to, to paint all of them with a broad brush. Um, I, I will say that they tend to be, the results tend to be a lot more complicated than a lot of the headlines tend to, tend to suggest. The sample sizes in certain other cases might be a little smaller than one might like. Um, and a lot of odd complexity. Like conversations that I might like to have about the data and how to interpret it and what it might suggest, um, and the differences between groups that are presumed to be the same but for their race, um, the differences that might exist that that the researchers are overlooking, like the, all those things seem meaningful. Um, but for the most part, people arrive at there's a disparity, and it must be because of subconscious bias on the part of the doctor. Uh, but Zeta, I didn't want to rob you of the opportunity to comment on that if you yeah if you i mean I, I think that um i think coleman's points are well taken and well made um i think and i think coleman has said this before one area where i think there there is some legitimate inquiry about this is if we're finding these these outcomes to be the result of discrimination of some form because we do need to be vigilant about that and that's why we have the civil rights act that's why people died to create a civil rights act was uh, so that we had mechanisms to find when people are being discriminated against, be able to bring lawsuits, so on and so forth. The issue of implicit or unconscious biases, it's a little bit more dicey because we don't know a whole lot about how they actually operationalize in real life. Like when we miss it, when we, for the most part, when we study implicit bias and Harvard has an implicit bias, like whole lab dedicated to this, we really don't know how it operationalizes into actual behavior. Like we can measure it because it's kind of like a flash or a split second reaction your brain has, but for the most part, people kind of overwhelm that pretty quickly. 
um, in most real world scenarios. Um, there's a psychologist named Susan Fisk that, for instance, says that if you try to imagine people's faces as vegetables, you can pretty much eliminate the racial bias fear response like pretty quickly. Like it's actually not that big, of, <laughs> it's not that big of a deal in many ways. Um, but that being said, we don't know that much about Emil, it. Yet. You'd be an eggplant. Um, <laughs> yeah, because basically what you're doing when you do that is you're trying to reimagine someone as an individual rather than trying to put them into like a racial category, an age category. You're not, you're not, you're not using the same heuristic, right? You're like, what is it? Who, who is, what does this person look like? Are they broccoli? Like, you know, and then all the fear response goes away. It's really, it's really fun how, how you can do it so simply. Um, but I do think, yeah, when we have active and contemporary cases of racial discrimination, those of us who are trying to get rid of race as a category, which I think we should, it's, it's, it's very distorting to our thinking. When they're active in contemporary cases of racial discrimination, those are also creating race, right? It's not just like woke scolds and obsessives and those people like creating. It's actually when people are actually being racist, that is creating and reifying the concept of race too. So I do think we do need mechanisms to measure that uh, when it exists. Um, I am, you know, I am curious how a country like France, where they basically write race out of the uh, census, out of the kind of government legal codes, uh, they don't really measure it in any way. Like, how do they measure discrimination? Because I have heard that there's a fair bit of like discrimination against like Arabs or Muslims uh, who are migrants to France. Like, do they have a good way of detecting that? Maybe there's some way you can do it with statistical analysis without actually like taking the categories and cataloging them. That's my one hesitation about getting rid of it altogether because those things still exist and they still do happen. And that yeah. can lead to disparate treatment. I do agree with Coleman that writ large disparities are not like, you know, like I don't think a white person has won the spelling bee for like a decade or maybe like one person has, right? <laughs> like it's mostly Indians and maybe a couple of Pakistanis end up in there. And I don't think that's because the entire thing is systemically biased towards Indians and Pakistanis. I just think at some point, probably a small, Group the community got really obsessed with it and started like getting other South Asians obsessed with it. And so now they always win it. Uh, it's not, it doesn't mean the whole thing is like systemically biased against one group or another. Mm -hmm. um, the way that you'd find that out is by actually studying it and measuring things. And like, you can't just look at a disparity and say that that's what's happening. And I think unfortunately that happens a lot. Um, also, the second thing is that disparities themselves aren't the main thing we should be trying to address. We should be trying to improve everybody's lives. Getting, uh, creating some kind of group average statistic between two groups that you draw a circle around, whether it's like tall people and short people, uh, attractive people and attractive people, like who people. That's not as important as making sure that people in the categories, no matter what group they're in, but if they're in this category, some kind of underprivileged, whether they're in poverty, whether they're behind bars, whether they're malnourished, uh, whether they're undereducated. Uh, I think it's trying to reduce those numbers clo as close to zero as possible is what really matters because at the end of the day, people go through their lives as individuals. And, you know, for instance, it may be the black poverty rate is higher than the white poverty rate, but the majority of human beings in this country in poverty are white. But the reality is I don't care what their skin color is. And I don't care about one group percentage versus the other. My goal is to get everything to zero, right? I want like, I want near zero child poverty in the U.S. like we have in Denmark or Sweden or Norway or Finland. Uh, that would be my goal. Um, you know, it wouldn't be just to try to manipulate statistics and get things around to where one group has the same percentage as the other group. Um, that doesn't tell me very much, doesn't get, gain me very much. And I think this disparities philosophy is often used, as Coleman was saying, like, you know, to say, hey, maybe the CEO should have a different, there should be a different percentage of black and white and Hispanic and Asian and on the board of some company. And like, what does that mean? It, does it help someone who's not on the board? If someone from the racial group, I mean, you know, it's like, um, I think, you know, sometimes we get confused when we're 
or assessing the disparities, although sometimes those disparities can be the result of contemporary discrimination, which is something we should be vigilant about. And that's why we have the Civil Rights Act, the Civil Rights Legislation to do that. Um, it's just that I don't think we should look at every disparity as an urgent crisis without seeing the wider context. Yeah. Obviously, I think trying to address racism where you find it is worthwhile. Um, I, I, I do think, unfortunately, that we've become pretty obsessed with our imagined ability to deduce that we've found racism any place we've found some sort of disparity. And I think there's something, there's something really interesting about the overwhelming uh, amount of attention that stories about the, the one that we mentioned at the very beginning of the conversation, the, the masks that were uh, covered both by CNN and New York Times, and I imagine other places, Black people who are concerned that wearing the mask will put them at risk of being uh, attacked by the police. There's something interesting, I think, about beliefs like that um, and about other manifestations of group-wide um, paranoia that might seem to be represented. Um, there was something called the Tuskegee effect that's been examined in a couple of different studies. Um, and there was another New York Times story actually about African-American men in particular, perhaps, but broadly um, African-Americans being less trusting of the medical establishment. And I I wonder if some of the, the if one of the consequences of the disproportionate focus on the role of race and all of the, not even speculation, the conclusions that are drawn about what the disparities suggest, um, if all of the attention on those issues don't tend to reinforce or at least to seemingly validate and then reinforce those predispositions, which I think could have real consequences. If you are generally suspicious of medical professionals generally suspicious of the kind of advice that you're getting from officials related to med medical situations that are going on, like a virus outbreak, for example, um, if it's possible for certain kinds of conspiratorial beliefs to take root, with, root within a community, is that something that could be widespread enough to have some sort of adverse effect? Could that help explain some of the disparities that exist? I don't yeah, know. Uh, I'm I'm of two minds about that because on the on the one hand, I, I feel like the people who write the article about how black people are afraid, many black people are afraid of wearing a mask because they don't want to get shot by a cop. Did they like like how many people did they talk to? Did they just sure. like scroll through Twitter? Like, yeah. is this a real thing? There was an op-ed written in the Boston Globe by a man who had that fear. I think it was reprinted in The Guardian. It's, it's been around a little bit. Um, I think that, that probably drove a lot of the discussion. I'd be willing to bet that no one fielding his op-ed submission said, how do you know this is widespread? How, how do you know you're not paranoid? Because mm -hmm. um, no one wanted to be that guy, which is, in my view, was just like the good editor. But in other people's view, is like, you're questioning racism. It's it's a sign of of a wider failure on the issue of race because people really do turn off their skeptical minds here, right? Mm -hmm. Coronavirus has been killing an upwards of two thousand Americans a day, uh, and all of last year, nine unarmed Black Americans were shot. 
and killed out of 41 total unarmed Americans shot and killed, which is roughly on the order of being struck by lightning. So it's, it's really, really not comparable. And there's a, there's a whole conversation to be had there with, with police brutality and race that is not reducible to the point I'm making right now. But there simply is no comparison, right? There's no basis for the fear. This, this one person tweeted, I want to stay alive, but I also want to stay alive, right. which I thought got points for good phrasing and cleverness. Um, and it got like 125,000 likes on Twitter. Uh, but it, the idea that not wearing a mask is anything comparable to to wearing a mask at a, at a moment like this is it's just an irresponsible myth for anyone to engage for more for more than a second. And then, secondly, I just wanted to address something um, uh, that you said, Zed, about France uh, and how could you know how how do they study racism in France? Because it you know it actually is literally illegal to even have data on your computer. As an as a professor, is, is that, that right? Yeah, it's they they're serious. They don't they don't mess around over there. You you need to get like some permits to to like to take racial data if you're even conducting a study. Um, and uh, so so the question is how do they how do they uh study racism when in fact we we know there there is certainly racism. How could there not be? Um. The, well, I mean, some of the answers are, are we, we, ha- we have them because we do them. You know, we, there's the big documentary that came out uh, probably four months ago where they sent in, you know, a 50-year-old black man and a 50-year-old white man who otherwise look similar and are dressed similar and have the same name and whatnot, send them into a real estate agency uh, for the same listing and film, you know, how they're treated, right? That That's a way of proving or at minimum testing a claim that there's racism is in, in a given sector without even mentioning the concept of a disparity. Uh, you could send out applications with stereotypically black sounding names versus stereotypically white sounding names. There are all these ways that are like rigorous um, of, of locating racism at the, or, or racial bias at like the place where it's, it's happening that, that don't rest on this naive assumption that a disparity equals racism. Yeah. And I, I think even, even those methods um, there's, there's almost certainly some difficulty and complexity that gets lost uh, in some of those things. Like the, I've seen some, some research about like uh, executive function being degraded um, amongst African-Americans when they're interacting with people of different races because of presumptions about racism that they might believe uh, a white person has not, not nearly enough studies related to that kind of stuff, but I've seen some. So you're like your prefrontal cortex, like stops working. <laughs> not so stops working, angry. but doesn't work as well <laughs> when they're testing executive function. I think it's like you get to do problems afterwards. You send in the white nurse to oh, ask like you some questions stereotypes, and then you, and then you okay. do some work afterwards. Yeah. It's not hard for me to imagine that something like that might in fact be true. And it's also not hard for me to imagine that it might play a role, a meaningful role in any sort of public interaction in a way that could actually affect the outcomes, especially when all we're looking at in many cases are 
sort of several percentage point differences um, in terms of the the kind of outcome disparities uh, that we're generally interested in or that we're generally tracking when we're having conversations about um, disparate treatment. Sorry that you were saying something. Yeah. So I, I went and I looked, I, I tried to figure out the, I tried to do an etymology of like, why did this become a narrative? Why was this in the New York Times? So on and so forth. It looks like what happened was Aaron Thomas, who um, I guess he is, I don't know if he's based in Massachusetts, but he made the tweet, which you, both of you referenced about him being uh, scared wearing a mask. It did get the 124,000 likes. Then an op-ed editor from the Boston Globe messages him publicly, replies to him saying, I'm an editor of the Boston Globe editorial page. Would you write an essay for us? Uh, so he did. And then the New York Times cited his tweet. It's in the body of their article. It's in the um, CNN article too. So it, it seemed like one person had a somewhat clever tweet. I mean, it's, it was kind of, <laughs> kind of fun. It was kind of fun word, but he didn't actually face any risk for doing this. He didn't, he wasn't arrested. He wasn't threatened with violence or anything. Uh, he was, he was maybe kind of making a joke of it. I mean, it's kind of funny if you think about it. Like I could see a fun Chappelle skit about this mm-hmm. or something. Um, <laughs> and then it ended up being a national media narrative through CNN and the New York Times. And the New York Times headline is for black men fear that mass will invite. Okay. For black. Okay. That's a category that describes 15 million people. I mean, I, it's not around 15 million people, right? Like this is based on one tweet. People were spreading around probably partly because they were making fun of racism or whatever. Like um, no polling data to support this claim. No, there's no. And here's the thing. Like, I, you know, I agree with people when they, you know, I think as a big kind of liberal um, commandment or, or or kind of article of faith to say that, you know, you don't, don't blame victims. People are, you know, um, don't, if people are scared of racism, it's understandable. Yeah. Yeah. So on and so forth. I, I agree. This is, there. there's a lot of logic to that, but look, every social intervention we make that creates reality also it bears some responsibility. And I think that if you're writing these articles that must have been read by millions of people and that tweet has mm. really gotten around, uh, you're suggesting to a large portion of the population that they have some legitimate fear of wearing the mask, right? Like New York Times just told us that 15 million people are like scared out of their wits about wearing masks because they could get arrested or hurt or shot or killed. Let's say, I don't know, 100,000 extra people on the United States just don't wear masks because they start to believe in this fear. They start to believe that if they do it, they'll be hurt sure. or something bad will happen to them. Some of those people catch the virus, some of them get sick, some of them die. Like, you know, there's a chain of events based on this kind of, I would say, somewhat irresponsible journalism that's happening as well. And I really wish they would take that into concern. You know, your good intentions, I understand it's well-intentioned. I mean, 99.9% of people in the world are well-intentioned outside of like complete sociopaths. Sure. But good intentions is not enough if your outcomes are pretty bad. And I feel like that's my fear about doing something like this. I actually think right now wearing a mask is probably more socially acceptable than ever. I actually think right now, if you're a black around person, people will give you much more of a pass for wearing one than they normally would because everyone's <laughs> wearing one right now, right? Like I live like two miles away from the Pentagon and I'm a brown guy walking around with my mask face. Like, you know, it's like, it's just like totally normal now. Like no one even gives me a second look. Uh, ordinarily, it probably would be somewhat intimidating to do that. And I'd probably think I probably shouldn't do that. Um, living around tons of like veterans and like special forces people who are in Iraq and stuff, you know, when they see someone with, a, with their face covered like that. But um, right now, actually, it's completely normal. And yeah, I really wish that they wouldn't drive fear in this way. I mean, another example that this brought to mind was, so I grew up in a town called Mableton in Georgia. 
kind of a smaller town, a little bit poorer um, before I moved to a wealthier part of Georgia later in my life. Um, a lot, very minority heavy. And there was a state lawmaker there who like went to a Publix and she later claimed like on Facebook, and I think maybe on Twitter as well, that some guy told her to go back to where she came from. And I was just, I, I looked at that story and I was like, okay, this is Navelton. Like, okay, like half the population is black to begin with. Where is he telling her to go back to? She's not an African immigrant. She's like straight up like black Georgia Southern woman. Um, it just cannot be true. But it went all over the internet, all over national news media. Democratic politicians were weighing in saying it was so terrible it's happened to you. Eventually, she kind of confessed that she kind of fibbed and like that didn't really happen. But no one thought, to, and the only reason she, she confessed this, by the way, is because the guy who actually is Cuban-American, he wasn't even white. People thought he was white or she claimed he was white. I don't know. I don't know how they thought he was white. He actually went up, when she was being interviewed by the local news, he actually went up to her and started being like, no, this isn't what happened at all. And he gave his side of the story to the camera and started talking to her. And eventually she admitted, okay, that's not what happened. <laughs> but the thing is, this kind of stuff spreads so quickly with so little fact-checking, even when, as someone who grew up in this place, it made no sense to me. Like, why would a white guy go to a, a store in a heavily minority town and just randomly tell a black woman to go back to where she came from? Like, it just makes no sense at all. Um, apparently the real thing that happened is they had an argument about their, their space in the shopping line because I don't know if she was in the wrong line or something, but he didn't reference anything about her background or her nationality or ethnicity or anything. And it just spreads so quickly. And I'm sure the news media makes a lot of money off it. I'm sure they get a lot of clicks. And I think there's a, another element beyond that, which is a moralization. They feel like if they have good intentions, like if they're resisting racism, it doesn't really matter if they got the story wrong. Because at some level, they had the right intention. And it's good just to educate people about things like this. Because somewhere in America, someone probably did say that to probably an immigrant woman. They're probably not saying it to people who are not immigrants. It kind of doesn't make sense as an insult. Um, but someone probably did say it. And I think that often, like with this, with Covington Catholic type stuff, people who in the media who spread this, they don't feel guilt because they, they feel so strongly. You know, They feel what's called moral licensing, right? Like they feel their righteousness kind of validates them to be able to make some mistakes or stretch the boundaries of the truth a little bit because it's still the right cause. And I think that's a very dangerous thing. You know, when I think I started my career working around DC elite institutions. I was at Center for American Progress, which was kind of like Obama's think tank, working around people who worked for Obama and Clinton. Uh, I saw very cynical behavior, uh, basically payoffs from corporations and elite actors. And I used to think that was the worst thing in the world was cynical, amoral DC type people. But I think my personal evolution is also understanding that when you're so principled and you have such a sense of righteousness that you can't possibly make a mistake or that whatever you do is serving some higher, higher moral cause, almost like in a religious sense, that you can also do really immoral things. I think it was really immoral to smear this guy in Mableton. Um, hmm. I think it was immoral what happened with Covington Catholic. And I think it's immoral what's being done with the, the masking issue. If one person on Twitter who wasn't even mistreated for wearing a mask says he's kind of scared in a joke, almost in a joking way, and it becomes a whole thing that drives national media and air into millions of people, perhaps preventing some people from wearing masks, perhaps putting themselves in danger. I don't care how good the intentions were. Yeah, I don't think yeah. it was a responsible act of journalism. Yeah. But again, I, I really, in the context of, you know, COVID, et cetera, I, I don't think that it's even a less, it's a less uh, speculative question as to whether or not it's doing some sort of real harm. Like there are profoundly important national conversations that are happening now. There's this protest uh, in in Raleigh today, and I imagine other places might have had similar protests with folks who want to end the uh, 
the stay at home orders and want to reopen the country. There's like a, a real conversation to be had about whether or not we have the right policies in place. There are real conversations to be had about the risk factors that matter. And there is a substantial amount of effort and attention that's being devoted to to stuff like this, to speculation about the role of race and to a particular emphasis on these disparities that I do think is pretty consequential um, in ways that people don't appreciate uh, whether or not it's uh, appropriate to do now. But we've been talking about this for a little while. I- I'd love to give you guys sort of an opportunity to close with final thoughts or perhaps to talk about something else that is of importance to you. Well, I don't know about you, but I've been doing nothing but reading and rereading Ibram Kendi columns, so I have nothing else <laughs> to talk about. <laughs> don't do that to yourself. I'm trying to master the art of good prose. <laughs> That's not how that works. That's not how that works. Um, what about you, Zane? Anything else? You know, I don't know how much the people who listen to the podcast uh, feel. I, I imagine most of them are probably sympathetic to the things y'all say, uh, but maybe some skeptical people listen sometimes. A good good I, number of skeptical people listen, actually. I, I, okay. It's one of the things I love most. Yeah, um, that's and great. I wish I wish there were braver souls um, who disagreed with me, or at least who were perhaps a little less busy, so that they could show up and well, yell at me and tell me how wrong I am. I don't I don't want to I don't want to insist that everyone who disagrees with me is afraid to talk to me. That's not necessarily yeah. it. They may just not want to talk to me because I'm not interesting enough. It's possible. Yeah. Well, you know, I I think I just want to emphasize to the skeptics that I feel like what the three of us were doing here is we are not trying to dismiss racism and we're not trying to dismiss inequality Mm -hmm. um i see myself as just trying to understand these issues with greater depth and greater sincerity and greater compassion right like i don't everybody who's being impacted by this um whether it's somebody who's sick and is very ill or someone who lost somebody who died or um, maybe someone from chinese american background who was suffered from some sort of hate crime graffiti on their business or something or all the people who are losing employment right now or losing hours, I think we should have a great deal of sympathy for all these people. Absolutely. I just want to make sure that we're organizing a response that's most effective to everybody's needs and that we have an even deeper uh, sense of, of, of sympathy and compassion towards people. I, I fear that a lot of these sectarian ways of looking at the world, where we've drawn a circle around a certain group and decided this is the group that's going to get most of our sympathy and most of our compassion, we're going to focus in on them i worry that that uh in some way is going to reduce our compassion or sympathy and and the effectiveness and and the depth of our response um i want it to be even more i want an even deeper more comprehensive response to all these problems that's why i do what i do it's not because i find myself as like oh i'm going to trigger the libs and i'm just going to say that you know racism is fake or something silly like that, which there are people who get a rise off trolling in that, in that way. Uh, that certainly hasn't been my, my experience in my life or, or what I've seen in research that those things are very real. I just think the way that we describe them, contextualize them and respond to them is very important. Uh, good intentions alone cannot carry the day. I think 99.9% of people in the world left and right have good intentions. Um, but I think we really need to make sure we're actually improving things at the end of the day with what we're doing. And and that's mainly why I do what I do. That's a great point. Well, gentlemen, stay safe. Thank you very much. 
Um, I think we can, uh, we'll leave it there until we talk again. It was my pleasure. All right, Anytime. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse, the fifth column.